when I've been sharing, I've been talking about truth and grace, and a couple of weeks ago, Paul was sharing about uh, the, the uh, lady at Simon's house and the jar and letting love flow. And I want to talk in a, in a similar vein from Mark 1 and Mark 2, but then I also want to look at what you might call Jesus' marketing techniques. Um, so we're going to look at marketing yourself the Jesus way. We're going to talk about France in 1945 and World War II collaborators because they relate to Mark 1 and Mark 2. And we're going to talk about fighter jets because they're just cool. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. And somehow we're going to link that into the Bible and the Paul and Paraguay and it's going to be exciting. You see, I know, I know when Paul shared about the lady at Simon's house and letting love flow and um, this prostitute comes in and pours a, a massage oil all over him. It's striking, it's shocking and all that. And the thing is, that's not actually the most shocking thing Jesus did. It's actually pretty lame when you understand some of the other things that go on and the other people he interacted with. And um, the more I read about Jesus, the more I go, this guy operated right on the edges and past the edges of what was acceptable. In fact, he broke everything that was acceptable. He broke through every cultural barrier. He reached past any and every kind of culturally accepted concept of what was right and wrong, if it meant he could reach somebody. He never did it just for the sake of doing it. But if it meant he could reach somebody, he would do it. He really didn't. You know people go, I don't care what people think, and you know they're actually lying because we all care what people think. Well, Jesus really didn't care. He really didn't, as I'll, as I'll show you a little bit. What's important, though, is when you hear these stories and you hear how radical Jesus was and how much he put himself out, you just have to be honest with yourself about how you feel about it. You've just got to be real about it. You've just got to go, that upsets me. If it upsets you, that's okay. You've just got to go, it upsets me because it shows you where you're at and then you can move on from there. The worst thing to do is to pretend you love it when really you hate it. Because then you're just pretending and Jesus didn't really, wasn't really up for that either. So, we're going to kind of walk our way through Mark chapter 1 and 2 um, to start with. And um, so I think we've got all these verses up there. They're probably going to come quite fast, Phil. So Mark 1 verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the first thing Jesus says in Mark's gospel. He's like, okay, I have got a mission. And my mission is this. My mission is that the kingdom of God has come near, whatever that means. And that to get into it, we have to repent and believe it. And really the kingdom of God is everything that God is. Jesus would, had been in a kingdom, a place called heaven. I don't know why I'm looking up there when it's everywhere, but anyway, in this place called heaven. And then he was going to come down in the form of a man to the earth and express that kingdom in who he was. And so when he taught us to pray, he said, pray like this, pray that heaven, oh, you're back from a high five. Awesome. Yeah. Still got it. <laughs> So Jesus, in this whole kingdom of heaven thing, he's, he's going, look, this thing that's in heaven, now it's coming to earth, and I'm going to express what heaven's like. Because what heaven's like is what Jesus is like all along and all around. And, and it's this thing about, it's not just this kind of gospel of salvation. It's not just Jesus came to save you from your sins. It's no, no, this is about being completely restored. This is about becoming as you were created to be, which is like Jesus was. So he's got this whole message to get out. And then he wanders around. So this is through, some of this is up there and some of it's not. I'll tell you when it's on there. So verse 16, he kind of goes through the Sea of Galilee, finds some fishermen and says, come on, let's fish together, but get some guys instead of some fish. For some reason, they leave everything and follow him. That's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, it's like somebody walking in a cap and go, come on, instead of doing this, we're going to do this now. And they all just get up, leave the desk and walk off. 
That's what happened. It's weird stuff, really. Uh, anyways, then he goes to a place called Capernaum. There's this man who it says has evil spirits. And he says, be quiet. And he gets healed. And they go, ooh, that's a bit weird. Um, and then we get to this. Uh, Mark 1 and verse 28. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, this is a good marketing campaign because now it's spreading. It's on social media, it's on Instagram, it's everywhere. People are hearing about this man called Jesus. This is going good. He's, mark he's got this message, he's got to get out. And now it's going good because news is spreading. People start talking about it. And it's going so well that it says in verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered and he healed various diseases. Okay, now the town might have only been a couple of hundred people. This is first century Galilee. But now there's a whole town. Okay, this is going particularly well. We've got the message out. We're getting a town. Everybody's going. This is it. The marketing campaign is doing well. And then Jesus, being a good marketeer, does this in verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So in other words, he, he left. And then it says, Simon and his companions went to look for him, so he didn't go back. They had to go find him. And when they found him, they explained, everyone's looking for you. And he replied, let us go somewhere else so I can search there also. That's why I have come. Who gathers a crowd, gets them all excited, and then leaves, and then goes, I'm going to start from scratch now. Because <laughs> I'm going to, hang on a minute, you've just got this buzz going. Why don't you send all those people out with leaflets to tell everybody else? And get, it, and get him to come. No, 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 no. Oh, I'm off somewhere else now. What's that all about? Why would you do that? Don't make any sense. And then you get to 39 to 42. So he goes throughout Galilee preaching. Guy with leprosy comes. Tells, the guy says, uh, if you are willing, this is great. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. Why is he indignant? Because the guy goes, well, if you're willing. If you're willing, that's what I'm here for you person. I'm here to make you clean. What do you mean are you willing? Of course I'm willing. Get clean, get healed. He gets healed anyway. And then Jesus, this is where it gets fascinating. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Hang on a minute. You've got a message to get out, Jesus. And your response to getting this message out, this man's been healed of leprosy. Now this is big. Leprosy. Calm down, Adam. You're getting too excited. Leprosy. <laughs> Leprosy is a skin disease. The skin disease meant you were unclean. The fact that you were unclean meant you were excluded. This man is excluded from the village. He's excluded from the people. He's on the outskirts, on the edges. That's why Jesus heals him. Suddenly he's healed, and Jesus gives him an instruction which every rabbi would have given. Go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony. In other words, go do what you do when you get healed of leprosy so you can now be included. So this man who was excluded is now included. Suddenly his identity is brought back. He's part of the family, part of the community. Jesus has done exactly what he came to do. And then he says, but don't tell anybody. Eh? Now if somebody came in here and we wanted to make this big and somebody got miraculously healed, what would you do? You'd tell everybody. It'd be everywhere, wouldn't it? The amount of things I see from churches and pastors telling me every five minutes on Facebook, this has happened, that's happened, this, they're like trying to get the message out. But Jesus did the exact opposite. Don't tell anybody. I'm going to explain why later on. But it's utterly bizarre. 
Then chapter two, a few days later, he goes back to Capernaum. They gathered in such large numbers, there's no room left. So it's a story where because they can't get to him, they take the roof off, lower the man down. He gets healed. Then he talks about forgiving sins. So everybody's completely amazed by verse 12. And then we get to verse, chapter two, verse 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, when you read that, it doesn't seem like too much of a deal. All right, he gets this civil servant and tells him to follow him. Except you have to understand what it meant to be a tax collector to understand what's really going on here. So, Israel is occupied by the Romans, so they're living in occupied territory. The Romans have conquered Israel and levied huge taxes on them. And then they got some Jews, the people who were occupied, to work for them. So the fact that a fellow Jew would choose to work with the occupying forces and not just to tax their fellow Jews, but to use their position for extortion meant, surprise, surprise, they weren't very liked. So this Roman army comes in and goes, we need some people to tax them. And you go, I'll do it. And then you tax them. And you tax them in, in, at times to poverty and take more than you needed off your own people. So you're making money off the back of the occupying force. They were so hated that the rabbis of the time declared that as one robber disgraced his whole family, so one tax collector disgraced his whole family. They taught that promises were not to be kept with murderers, thieves, and tax collectors. They classed a tax collector as a murderer or a robber. That is how they were seen. They taught that the riches of a tax collector could not be received in the temple nor could they judge or give testimony in court. These people were completely excluded, excluded from temple life because you couldn't give you money. They were complete outcasts, completely excluded. To help you see how hated they were, you need to understand the reaction to the French people at the end of World War II. The French, of course, were occupied by the Nazis throughout World War II. And some French people chose to join the resistance and fight. Others chose to side with the Nazis. We have a word for people who side with enemies in war. We call them collaborators. And many of the collaborators in France were women. Many, I'm for sure, felt they had no choice. And I'm making no comment on whether they did or did not. I'm just telling you what happened. Many, I'm sure, felt they had no choice. After all, the Nazis often controlled the food in a town. So often the only way to feed yourself and your children was to receive a German soldier or soldiers into your home. It brought protection for you and your children, and you got fed. The cost, of course, was great. What is striking is how these women collaborators were treated after the war. I'm going to read some excerpts from an article that was in The Guardian in 2009. Once a city, town or village had been liberated by the Allies or the resistance, the Shearers would get to work. In mid-June, on market day, following the capture of the town of Carrington, a dozen women were shorn of all the hair on their heads publicly, so they had the heads completely shaved. In Cherbourg on the 14th of July, a truckload of young women, most of them teenagers, were driven through the streets. In Villageur, one of the victims was a woman who had simply been a cleaner in the local German military headquarters. 
That's a picture taken in 1945 of a woman having a head shaved for being a collaborator. There were some videos, but they were not showable. After the humor, you can take it down. After the humiliation of a public head shaving, the shawm women were often paraded through the streets on the back of a lorry. Some were dawed with tar, some stripped half naked, some marked with swastikas in paint or lipstick. In Bayer, Churchill's private secretary, Jack Colville, recorded his reactions to one such scene and watched an open lorry drive past to the accompaniment of boos and catcalls from the French populace with a dozen miserable women in the back, every hair on their head shaved. They were in tears, hanging their heads in shame. That's what we did, or what the French did, 80 years ago to collaborators. Zacchaeus and Levi were collaborators. There was occupation, and they chose to work with the occupying force against their tribe. So when you read about Zacchaeus, who was actually a chief tax collector, he was the area manager. And when you read about Levi, who becomes one of his disciples, Jesus is reaching out beyond every conceivable boundary. So if Jesus had been there in 1945, I think he'd be the one who stood in front of the truck and said, these women are coming to my house for tea. Can you imagine anybody else in 1945 doing that? That is what it means for Jesus to love somebody. And the extent that he will go to, to love anybody and reach anybody. The whole prostitute thing has got nothing on the tax collectors, I tell you. This is how radical and incredible the love of Jesus is. You see, there's not just one incident of Jesus letting love flow. It happens again and again and again and again. And what you find is Jesus seeks out all those who are on the edge. He seeks out all the downtrodden, the oppressed, the marginalized, those on the edges. And he just blasts through every little bit of what we might say is decency. And he smashes through it and goes, I love you. And I'm going to give everything for you. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? This love that Jesus has, this ability to reach beyond, is incredible. And we've got to grasp it, church. I realise, I realise that most of us, if not all of us, if we were there in 1945, wouldn't dare to stand up. I realise that. And that's okay. I realise that we may have been the people going, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? You see, we always want to side ourselves with Jesus, but really, a lot of the time, in reality, there's a little bit of the Pharisees in us that goes, why is, why is he doing that? Why is he going right beyond? Why is, he, why is he eating with all the people that we think he shouldn't be eating with? But really, it's because Jesus is going, this is the love of God. It's extreme, and it's radical, and it's all-encompassing, and it's for everybody, everywhere, at every moment in time. Just like Jesus continually reaches out and reaches beyond, he also continually tells people not to tell anybody what's going on. It's not unusual you find this in Mark 2. So Mark, Matthew 12, he heals a man with a disabled arm, says don't tell anybody. Mark 7, a deaf and mute man, don't tell anybody. 
Luke 8, he raises somebody from the Jairus' daughter from the dead and then says, give us something to eat and don't tell anybody. What's that all about? He must be hungry being, he must get hungry being dead. <laughs> why does, why, why does Luke decide to add that bin? He told her parents to give us something to eat. Why? Why is that there? I don't know. Other than just think of the practical care of Jesus. Okay, this is what you're going to do now. Because you're probably going to be a little bit upset. You're probably going to be in shock. You might need a cup of tea with some sugar in. So, get us something to eat. Care to the extreme. He wants you to know he's bothered about the practical stuff as well. Mark 9 takes his disciples up to a mountain. They have this like kind of moment that they, you might have if you're on LSD. And they see like these people transfigured in front of him. They're in like this kind of weird third heaven place. There's like Jesus there. There's Elijah there. They're like, whoa, we are tripping now. And then he goes, but don't tell anybody. What the heck? What's going on there? Then Matthew 16, this is Matthew 16. They go, oh, oh, you're the Messiah. Oh, yeah, well done. Don't tell anybody. I, what? <laughs> he spent all this time trying to tell them who he is. Then when they get it, he goes, don't. You see, there are ways that we are used to of getting a message out. You draw a crowd, you build momentum, you gather a following, then you keep them happy, you run shoulders with the influences so your message can spread further and faster and you build something big. That's how people do it, isn't it? That's how we know to do it. You kind of get this momentum going and you build people and you get it out there and then you, you rub shoulders with people who can influence other people. Jesus rubbed shoulders with all the people who turned most people away. Like he did. Jesus' marketing strategy, if you put that before the dragon's den, they'd go, that's rubbish, that's not going to do anything. And then he'd point to the billions <laughs> of people who know him and go, well, it worked. But why? Why is it that way? Well, I don't know why, but I've got an idea. It starts to make sense when you remember that when Jesus talks about this thing he calls the kingdom of God, he compares it to things like seeds and yeast. He talks about very small things that need to grow and infect their surroundings. So he, talk, he often talks, doesn't he? It's like a mustard seed. It's like a seed that was sown. It's like yeast that goes. It's this thing that has to permeate through. And Jesus often talks about bread. And one of the ways of understanding how Jesus does things is to think how you can sell bread. So you can sell bread by doing a big marketing campaign and having posters everywhere. And then you can go out all, and you can have these big pictures everywhere. Or you can open a little shop and you can bake it, and you can let the smell waft down the street. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a little bit how Jesus did it. You can, be, you can be drawn in by all the things that hit your brain, or you can be drawn in by something that you go, what is that? Oh, oh that sounds fascinating. And you can be drawn in by this aroma of something bigger. Or you can be bombarded by all these big messages that just hit your brain but don't really touch you in a deeper place. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in creating, in getting huge crowds. In fact, just the opposite. In John 4, there's some people start commenting, hey Jesus, you're getting more numbers than John. He gets to a numbers game. And then Jesus goes, well, I'm off then, and leaves you read it, John 4, 1 to 3, that's what happens. They go, John, Jesus, you're, you're baptising more people than John. It says, Jesus left. Jesus was not into the numbers game. 
Everybody, every time I meet another pastor, second question, how big is your church? Why? Why does that matter? What does it matter? If you're called to be a shepherd and you've got five people, you're a shepherd. That's beautiful. Look after those five people. If you've got 10,000 people, that's beautiful. Look after those 10,000 people. What does it matter? Because we, know, we, we go, success equals numbers. Because we live in an economy where numbers are important. The more money you make, the better you are. The more wage you earn, the better you are. The bigger house you've got, the better. We live in this whole numbers economy, but numbers, Jesus assumes it all, he shuns it all. He goes, I am not interested in a numbers game. And walks off when somebody starts saying you've got more numbers than him. For Jesus, there was something about going under the radar. He really wasn't interested in fame and celebrity. I don't know how he'd manage it today. Maybe he'd just change his name every week or something. Or, I don't know. Or, I don't know what he'd think of our celebrity culture, but I'm certain he wouldn't be up for it. Although lots of people would try to make him one. And I'm pretty certain he'd run away. So this week, me and Matt are going to Nepal. Paul and Steve are going to Paraguay. And of course, we want to go under the radar for a couple of reasons. Just as Jesus did. What's fascinating is how under the radar everything we do is. You see, we've, we've learned, and Paul's learned, and he's taught me, this was what Jesus did. This is how he did it. He didn't make a huge deal of it everywhere. He wanted magazines, he wanted... He just got on with it and shared it with the people that he felt would want to know it. But what happens is, because we are in a culture that is the complete opposite of that, including most of our church culture, we tend to think that what goes on in these places is small because it, it doesn't get expressed how other things get expressed. Does that make sense? So we tend to look at it and go, well, well what is it then? And then we try and express it to you, but because we want to do it like Jesus did it, we're kind of torn in this place of, well, how do I not do it like, how do I do it like Jesus did it, but also express to you what really goes on and how powerful these things are? So we're always torn. Because I want to be fearful of this. But I know we all live in this total other culture. So it's a fascinating dilemma. But there's two reasons why we do it under the radar. Firstly, it's the model Jesus I see used. But secondly, what we do is contested. And what's fascinating when you read the stories of Jesus is there is one group who understood exactly who Jesus was from day one. Every other group, they were like, are you, are you, a, are you a... Well, some thought he was drunk, some thought he was demon-possessed, some thought he was the Messiah, some thought he was Elijah, some thought he was John the Baptist, whatever. But there's one group who, whenever they are mentioned, always understand who Jesus is. Mark chapter 1, verse 23 to 24. <coughs> Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <coughs> that even after sunset, we've already read this verse, he also drove out many demons and he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now we don't have time to go into demons and evil spirits right now, but for now, just, just let me say this. There is a spiritual dimension to life. There is more than just what you see. And I believe in an angelic realm and I believe in a demonic realm. And in that realm in which we operate all the time but we don't realise, everyone is fully aware who Jesus is. And that's the thing. 
You read it, every time he interacts, the Bible talks about that thing, they go, I know you are. When he comes to the man who's, uh, who's in chains, they go, oh, they start trembling when he turns upon the scene because they know who he is and they know who's really in charge. But you see, there's a battle and a fight for the kingdom of God. And this is where we're linked to fighter jets. And in particular, the F-22 Raptor. You see, these trips that we're embarking on this week, they are, they are kingdom covert operations. And we want to remain hidden in his glory and light throughout the whole times. We are not interested in becoming known. Only if it helps the kingdom of God. And I, I speak for Paul and myself when I say these words. Just like those F- F-22 Raptors can do, we want to go in without the enemy knowing we are there. We want to surprise the enemy with doors that would open spontaneously without much prior warning. You see, there is a... It's clear that for many years this gospel of salvation has been received all over the world. And by that I mean the idea that Jesus loves you, he died for you, and you can have your sins forgiven. But Jesus didn't didn't come to preach that. He came to preach the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is much, much more than that. It is that, but it's much, much more than that. It's about the discipleship of nations, growth and maturity of the church, the transformation of believers and the release of every single person into their unique call and identity and the restoration of all things now. And that's the message that we carry. And of course, the enemy hates that because that changes lives, as you know, because your lives have been changed. And as such, we're targeted because the enemy hates it. But if we are hidden in Christ and one with him, surrounded by your prayers of love and protection, And if those prayers of yours, like letters of love going before us, prepare our way, we can be one step ahead and ready for whatever and whoever we are sent to see. And it may be that you sense an urgency, a desire, a fire to pray. It could be that you feel completely inadequate and unable. But however you are feeling, please don't allow anything to disable you from agreeing with Jesus in the prayer that he taught us all, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that the same will happen in heaven as on earth and like Anne said the power of prayer is not in the words it's in the agreement that's where the power is you know your prayers are eagerly awaited in heaven Revelation 8 John 15 Matthew 8 and it all talks about how things happen when we pray because without your prayers we can't do or accomplish much at all God needs you we need you we're asking you to cover and smother our time away One of the ways an F-22 manages to avoid radar and operate in stealth is because of the materials it's covered in. It's what it's clothed in. And of course, we go clothed to the best of our ability in humility and grace. But your prayers can help with that because that's what is stealth towards the enemy. Love, humility, grace, mercy, kindness. And of course, we're going into two developing nations. Nations can only develop in a healthy way if the church is healthy. Because it's the church that stands up for justice, mercy and righteousness. And nations can only develop in a healthy way if the leaders are healthy. And we know Jesus sent us to disciple nations. Which is what we're going to do in these next two weeks. And I realise, you know, I don't know how these things happen. And, 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 and you might have been like me. You know in the early years I'd hear Paul talking about presidents and prime ministers and I'd be like. No, but you just have to be honest. Because sometimes you might feel like that. You might feel like, really? Look at us. Look at this place. Really? But as Tina rightfully prayed, God does not do things your way. 
And Jesus always went under the radar. So if Jesus wanted to do things now, would he have a big massive campaign and it was you, or would he just go in under the radar? Reach people, meet people, influence people, and then influence everyone else. Because the problem with selling bread by baking bread is that you teach other people to bake bread. So all they do is bake bread and let the smell waft down the street. <coughs> so what happens is you don't get these big, massive, huge campaigns that go boom. Instead, you get bread. And the smell entices people. And of course, we don't always hear about that. I'll go, I'll sit with Harry. I'll always remember the second time I went, he introduced me to this overseer. I'm walking into this building. This must be, I don't know, seven, eight years ago now. And I went, oh, this is somebody, beautiful old Nepalese man. And, I, and Paul said, so what does he do? He says, oh, he, he looks after about 2,000 people in a number of churches. <laughs> and I went, okay, well, what am I here for then? <laughs> That's one for little, like, just sort your ego out before you walk in this place, Adam. And, it, you know, he looks after over 100, I'll find out when I go, but the last time it was like over 100 churches, it were tens of thousands of people, but they're just breaking bread and letting the smell waft out towards the air. I want to talk to him. I, I think, from what I understand, it's getting to the point where it's illegal to share your faith in Nepal right now. I think it's at that point. I want to talk to him about it. I understand what I mean. And I get to go and speak to 200 young people and I, I don't know what young people is, hopefully it's up to about 42. Because <laughs> then I'm included. But, but they were, you know, Harry's leading them. They, these are people who want, they want to take up positions in their country. They want to be teachers and influence people. They want to be lawyers and influence people. They want to be people who can change things. And I get this incredible opportunity to share the kingdom of God with them. But I can't do it on my own. I've got a gift. That's all I've got. I've got a gift. But without your prayer and without your help, it's as good as useless. I need you. Paul's got a gift, an incredible gift, to speak and open doors and bring life. But, but without your prayers, without your help and support, it's as good as useless. And so... We want to go in like those F-22s in stealth mode, doing great damage to the work of the enemy and bringing freedom and liberation to all that we meet. But we need you to be able to do that. And I just want you to know finally that we are so thankful and grateful for all your prayers, all your financial giving. It's incredible what we give as a house. We're so blessed and so thankful. Thank you for being with us, sending us, supporting us, covering us. In terms of the finance for, for Paraguay and Nepal, um, it's £12.50 for each person. For them to go to a conference, and I thought it was two days, it's now three days. But anyway, that's what happens when Harry does it. So apparently we get there on Tuesday at five o'clock and then we're basically at the conference and then we leave the conference to go to the airport. So that'll be good fun. But for £12.50, one young person gets three days of teaching and they get fed and they get looked after. So if you've not given anything yet, could you at least just give £12.50 and just support one child? one young person, to be able to get this message. Okay? You know, in terms of the flights, we'll, we'll, we'll work that out, but I don't want... We need 616 quid to be able to give Harry what he needs. I do not want to arrive there and tell him that I ain't got all the money. He's got enough to worry about. I've got enough to worry about. 
without that. The flights are on a card, we'll pay them off at some point, but, but that. Can I ask that between us, somehow, we can manage to do that? Okay, let's pray, shall we? Can somebody just get the kids back as well? From, from everywhere? You've done it? Okay, somebody could nip downstairs. Thanks, Kaz. Father, you... You were amazing, Jesus. The way you love people was just utterly incredible, Father. And Lord, I want to love like that. I want to be prepared to love like that. I want to be prepared to extend your love to anybody and everybody and be willing to break any cultural taboo, Father. Lord, I want to do it how you did it, always in love and grace, always extending that there's a best way to live in truth and grace and brought together. Oh, Father, we want to, I want to be a person and I want us to be a people, Lord, who know what it is to truly love, Father, yes. and to truly go beyond those boundaries, Father. And Lord, we, I want to thank you, Lord, for every, every gift, Father, every prayer that's already gone forward for these trips, Lord. We thank you for it. And Lord, you have got it. It's in your hands. It's your vision. It's your work that we are doing. And Lord, we are just asking for the release of everything that's needed. In Jesus' name. Amen.